week four? Good, week four. Last week we had uh, Matt Kearney uh, speaking about being salt and light. And uh, this morning we are going to be looking at, uh, well, the title of, of the message this morning is Looking Under the Surface with Jesus. Looking Under the Surface with Jesus. Great. So, um, first of all, just a, maybe a bit of an overview. Over the, the last couple of weeks, we've been exploring the, the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount was the, the greatest sermon ever preached. And uh, Jesus gave that message 2,000 years ago. He sat, sat on a hill and thousands of people gathered to, to listen to him and to hear him preach. And, and, and I guess the, the question we need to ask is, is what was this message uh, what is it? What isn't it? And who was it for? Um, and, and Jesus uh, gave us these descriptions. Uh, through, throughout it, we discover what it is, what it isn't, and, and who it is for. Um, but um, Pastor Peter McHugh gave an interesting thought um, in, in, uh, in his book that I was reading recently. And he said this, that most people have repented enough to be forgiven, but not enough to see the kingdom. And when we talk about repentance, repentance in the Bible literally means to change our mind or change our perspective. It's the renewing of, of the mind. And, and I think if we have maybe a, uh, a limited view of what the gospel is, we, we will see it as, uh, as just a, what, what would be described as a soterian gospel. So the gospel is just about how do I get to heaven one day. It's just about the salvation process. But actually the gospel that we're called to preach is the gospel of the kingdom. And that includes a lot more. And, uh, and so the, the Sermon on the Mount was really Jesus' kingdom manifesto. It was, he, he came, uh, and, and the forerunner for, for Jesus was John the Baptist, and he said this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what was he saying? He was saying, it's time to change your mind. It's time to think differently about, about who God is. It's time to think differently about, uh, about the way that you think about God because Jesus is about to represent God for us and he's bringing his kingdom with him. And so Jesus brought the kingdom and then he gave his kingdom manifesto. And so what, what is it? This is how do we now live that the kingdom is here? How do we now live that we are now in right standing with God? And so who is the kingdom for? Jesus starts with um, uh, uh, the Beatitudes, which are a fairly um, well-known sort of passage or part of the Sermon of the Mount, the Beatitudes. But really, Jesus is describing who the kingdom is for. And he says the kingdom is for the meek. The kingdom is for the humble. The, the kingdom is for the spiritual zeros, the ones who, who don't think so highly of, of themselves. You know, he's, he's presenting this, this kingdom to a group of people who, who were, in some sense, the spiritual zeros in their community or in their culture, uh, because only the rabbis, only the, only the ones that were learned and, and were able to, uh, to, you know, to understand the scriptures or, or be allowed to read the scriptures, were considered the spiritual heroes. But Jesus says, no, my kingdom's for everyone. And so he says it's for the humble, it's for the meek, it's the ones that will hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's for the merciful ones, not the proud, not the ones that think highly of themselves, not the self-righteous, and my kingdom's for everyone. So when we look at um, the Sermon on the Mount, which is, is found in Matthew, um, Matthew 5, we can see that uh, what Jesus is presenting 
is not a someday in the future teaching. He's talking about right here, right now. How does the kingdom affect us right here, right now? What does it mean to live in and participate in the kingdom right here, right now? And a few weeks ago, I gave you the illustration of, a, of an iceberg. You know, when we see an iceberg um, floating on, on the water, we just see the, the tip of the iceberg. But actually, underneath the water is a, is a whole lot more. There's a whole lot more underneath the water. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of an iceberg or a cross-section view, but there's a lot more under the water than there is above the water. And, and so in some sense, this is what Jesus is doing with the Sermon on the Mount. He, he's lifting the cover, so to speak. He, he's looking below the surface at, at not just our behavior, but what actually motivates our behavior. What, what are our intentions and our motives? What, what, are the, what, are, what is our belief systems that are actually controlling our behavior? Um, Jesus is exposing these things. Because the, the truth is that our behavior is always the echo of belief. So what we really believe will come out in how we act, how we treat others, what we, you know, what we do with our lives. That, that, that is the fruit of what we believe. Now, when it comes to, to Scripture, um, the... Uh, uh, Jewish people or, or rabbis, they, they read Scripture in four different ways. So, uh, I guess one way to put it would be in four different levels. And so the, these four different levels are this. There's, uh, and I probably won't pronounce these right, but there's Peshat. Peshat is the first level of reading or understanding Scripture. And, and this literally means surface. So this is the surface level of understanding or the, the literal or direct, direct meaning. So that would be to, to take our Bibles and read the Scripture and just, just interpret it as it reads. Now there's a, another level which is called remez, and that's, that means hints, or it's the, the deep uh, allegoric or hidden symbolic meaning just beyond the literal meaning. And so it's, it's going a little bit deeper. And then there's derash which means to inquire or seek. It's the comparative meaning is given through similar occurrences. And then the last one is, is sod. Not sod off, I don't think. don't know if that's where it comes from. But, but sod means secret or mystery. It's the mystical meaning as given through inspiration or, re, or revelation. And so the... Um, the rabbis or, or Jewish people that study the Scripture, they would say that, that Scripture is like a diamond. And depending on which way you hold it depends on which way the light shines through it. And so what I'm saying is that there's, there's different levels in Scripture that we can go. And, and that's why, I, I don't know about you, but I mean, I, I, I read the, um, the Genesis account, you know, the, 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 the start of the Bible, and, you know, we, we can look at that as a description about creation. But actually, if we dive way deeper, it's actually this description of humanity. And it sets up the whole story of the Bible. And it's a, a lot deeper and a lot, uh, it has a lot more meaning than just a, a literal description of how earth came about. And, and so we can dive a lot deeper. And that's the, the way that Jewish literature is actually written. It's written in such a way that you can read it on the 20th time and you're learning something more. God is unveiling something more and, and you're discovering something more. And, and so this morning, I want us to dive a little bit deeper. Let's look under the surface. Because we could read the Sermon on the Mount and just take a literal reading, re, reading and that would be helpful. But actually, what, what are the things that Jesus is trying to expose and get underneath? 
So some ways to think about um, the Bible is like this. Above the surface, the Bible is a book that we read, but then when we get below the surface, we discover that it's actually a book that reads us. Above the surface, it may appear to be a list of rules, but below the surface, it's a book that exposes our motives and intentions. Above the surface, we may see it as a book with the answers, but I don't know about you, but I've discovered that the more I read it, I discover it's the book with all the right questions. See, we, we look at the old covenant, which ex- actually exposes our broken humanity, and then the new covenant restores our broken identity. And the old covenant exposes our sin or our separation from God, and the new covenant reveals our sonship and our reconnection to our Father. So there's this, there's this dichotomy, there's this new perspective, and it's almost like this. When Jesus is presenting the Sermon on the Mount, in some ways he's saying, hey, you thought God was like this, but actually he's like this. And so that's why it takes a renewing of the mind. It takes that repentance. It's the changing our mind about, about who you think God is, that the kingdom of heaven is here now, and there's a new way of living, a new way of thinking. You know, previously we, we've looked through the eyes of broken humanity, but, but now we see through the eyes of sonship. We live from a position of love, acceptance, and affirmation, not towards a position of love, acceptance, and affirmation. So the thing that I have discovered in my, uh, my Christian walk is that the more and more I get closer to God and the more that I spend time in the scriptures, the more I realize how twisted my perspective was. It's almost like every day I'm discovering that God is better than I ever thought. So in Matthew 5, verse 21, let's, let's dive into some scripture. So Matthew 5, verse 21 is where we're going to pick up. Um, and there's these, how many? One, two, three, four, five, six little parts to, to Matthew uh, 5, 21 through to 48. So the end of chapter 5, there's these little parts where Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, but I say... Now let's, um, do we have time to read them all? Okay. So verse 21 starts with this. You've heard it said, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fall will be in danger of the fire of hell. It's pretty full on. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said, 
You shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to have one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So we can see here that that Jesus is is using quite hyperbolic, uh, out there language, eh? I mean, I don't know, I haven't seen anyone recently gouge their eye out. Um, And so if we were to take this literally, um, we would have a whole lot of dismembered people. It, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Okay, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is by God's throne, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. It's pretty practical, isn't it? And anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that that you may may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? And then he finishes it with this really simple thing to do. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Right. There's some really good stuff in there. There's some really tough stuff. There's some really practical stuff. And some interesting stuff, you know, like what, why does Jesus, why is he talking about divorce? And why is he talking about oaths? That's really random. Um, and I think when we, like honestly, we could spend a whole sermon on each one of these and, and unpack it, um, and, and, but we don't have time for that. What, what I wanted to do this morning is to, to actually dive below the surface and see what is Jesus actually getting at with these things. So, so the first thing that we need to understand is that this is not a list. I think it's, it's, I don't know why, but I feel like maybe it's our human nature that, that we, we need to find the list. Uh, I need to know the rules so that I know if I'm in or out. And, and so potentially we, we could see this as a list. This is Jesus' list of things that we have to do. And, and I mean, there's only six things. He could have covered a whole lot more things. Um, and I think the interesting that thing that I find with lists, we, we find lists in the Bible. You know, Paul talks about, hey, these are the works of the flesh. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I've noticed that we like to find the lists that we are not in. Hey, you know, it's a lot easier for us to talk about the lists that we're not in. But the truth is, we're all in the lists. 
We're, we're all in the list. And what is Jesus really getting at? And what does his, his original hearers understood that he was talking about? And what does it mean for us in the here and now? And I think when we read this passage, where have we come from and where are we heading? You know, we've, we've just come out of, of, of Jesus talking about, hey, be salt and light. That, you know, your lives count for something. There's a bigger why. There's a more profound yes to live by. You know, I've called you to be salt and light. I've called you to live differently, to look differently, to act differently, to think differently, to, to be the salt that preserves and brings the flavor into the world, to be the light that drives out the darkness into the world. You know, there, there's this bigger why. And, and I think when we look at the overall picture, there's this sense that we have the choice to participate in, live in, receive, and give away the benefits and the culture of, sorry, the, the benefits of the culture and life of heaven now and for eternity. Like, like, this is the kingdom of heaven, and if we choose to participate in it, we'll receive the benefits of it, and we'll also be able to give it away. But, but then Jesus brings in this, this other thought that we could also potentially participate, live and receive, and give away the culture and destruction of hell today. Uh, do, do you get what I'm saying? That, that, that we, we, we can't just project this into the future someday, sometime in the future. No, no, we actually get to participate in the life and culture of heaven or the life and culture of hell. See, Psalm 115 verse 16 says, The highest heavens belong to God, but the earth is given to man. And later he was teaching his disciples in the same sermon, and he said, he said, when you pray, pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. So in other words, he's saying it's our responsibility not just to get to heaven one day, but to bring heaven to earth now, in the here and now. And so we can start to ask ourselves questions like, does the girl at McDonald's know that you're saved even when you get grumpy at her when she gets your order wrong. You know, if someone cuts you off in traffic, do you point your finger at the sky because they didn't get the memo that where you're going is more important than where they're going? See, see Jesus is saying, I, I care about how you treat the lady in McDonald's that got your order wrong. I care about the person that, that has failed morally. I care about how you treat them. I care about how you treat the person that ripped you off. Jesus cares about how we treat the people that are in need around us. He cares about how we live today. And this is not someday in the future. No, this is our choices today determine our fruit tomorrow, which determines the foundations of our lives. This is what Jesus is getting at. The kingdom is here. Will you live in and participate in it? Will you receive the benefits of it and then give away what you have received? Jesus has just come out of saying, hey, I'm the fulfillment of the law. That the law was fulfilled in me. I met all of its requirements. I love God and I love people perfectly. He fulfilled all of those requirements and then through his death and resurrection has given us life and has recreated us so that we can continue to live and love God and love people just as he did. See, he's presenting a new way of living, a new way of thinking. 
So my question this morning is, is who wants to, you know, to live a life that represents Jesus well? Who wants to be an ambassador of heaven, a carrier of hope, a, a carrier of love, a carrier of peace? Who wants to bring the life and culture of heaven into the world? Who wants to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Does anyone want to be that? Yeah, then this message is for you. Now that you've been put right with God, how are we going to live? This is what Jesus is getting at. And so he makes his famous statement, you've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. What right does Jesus have to say this? What right does Jesus have to say this? I mean, we could say he's the son of God. Uh, at this point, no one really believed that he was the son of God. So, so what made people come to the, to, the, to the mount where he sat to hear him teaching? Uh, there are different passages that say that Jesus spoke as one with authority. Well, what authority did he have? Uh, if you want to hear a great message about how Jesus had this type of authority, have a listen to Shane Willard's message, The Yoke of the Rabbi, or The Authority of the, of the Rabbi. See, Jesus spoke with authority because of his rabbinic training. And, and so what would happen is, uh, rabbis at that time, there were different levels of, of rabbis. The highest level of rabbi could present a new yoke. And so he was, had the authority to say, you've heard it said, but now I say. See, everyone, every other rabbi below him just had to teach what was already taught. Jesus turns up. And he's got this different level of authority, and, and they would call it a yoke. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. See, he's presenting a new way to think, a new way to live, a new way to act, and his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So through this passage, Jesus addresses murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, eye for an eye, love your enemies. Uh, let's quickly just sort of jump through them and see if we can get under the surface a little bit. So, so Jesus addresses murder, and what he's saying is that hate, bitterness, and unforgiveness will bring destruction into your life. These, thing, these things are actually destructive. You know, you've heard it said, don't murder. That, I mean, that's pretty easy. Hey, I mean, no one woke up this morning, I'm sure, wanting to murder anyone. But I'm sure that maybe potentially some of us woke up this morning with unforgiveness in our heart and bitterness. And what Jesus is saying is you're imprisoning yourself by carrying those things. This will actually bring destruction into your life. It's not good for you. He says, you know, if anyone says raka or, or call someone a fool even, What's he saying? Rakah is a word or intent of contempt for someone. It's the feeling that a person or a thing is worthless or beneath consideration. What's he saying? He's saying if you think that you are above others, that's going to bring destruction into your life. If you have contempt for others and think that others are worthless, that's going to bring destruction into your life. He addresses adultery and he, he talks about the, the fact that, you know, he says, even if you look at another person with lust, you've committed adultery. Now, what, what is he saying here? 
See, when we, when we look at, at others with lust, and you know, we start to play the video in our mind or potentially we even watching, what we're actually doing is dehumanizing them. And we're also dehumanizing ourselves. So we're actually saying, you exist to gratify my desires. You are less than human. So this is what Jesus is getting at. How do we think about others? Do, do we think that we're worth more than them? Do we think that we're better than them? See, the human heart is designed to be a wellspring of life for others around us. But misguided sexual desire turns our hearts from a wellspring of life into black holes of destruction. And Jesus even goes to the point where he says this, this, this thing, if, if we consume misguided sexual desire, this thing will eventually consume you like the fire of hell. It, it will consume your life. He talks about divorce. What, what's he saying with that? That seems like just kind of an odd one, eh? He's like, you know, you can only have a divorce if there's adultery. That's what he's saying. What, what he's actually saying is women aren't things. In the culture of the day, a man could divorce a woman for no reason. He didn't have to give a reason. Women were treated as objects, as things. And Jesus is saying, no, no, women aren't things. If there's adultery, you, you have the right to divorce them, but you must give them a divorce paper. Previously, you, you, a man could just leave a woman, just find another one, treat them like objects, treat them like things, and, and, and a woman that, that was uh, treated like that would spend the rest of her life being scorned by others. Now, he's actually saying women aren't things. We need to treat them with respect. We need to treat women with respect and honor. We, we can't dehumanize other people. So this is what's below the surface. Talks about oaths. He says, be a person of your word. Say yes or no. I mean, how many times have we promised to be somewhere, to do something, and, and not done it? Jesus is saying, hey, this kind of behavior will actually bring destruction into your life. It's double-mindedness. It's manipulation with words. He says, eye for an eye, repay hurt with kindness. This is what he's saying. Repay hurt with kindness. Revenge only perpetuates destruction in our lives. If someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. Love your enemies. He's saying, don't treat people according to what they can give you. I'm telling you, love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out your true selves, your God-created selves. That's from the message. And so when he says, pray for those who persecute you, he's not talking about people that beat us for our faith. He's talking about people that dishonor you people that disrespect you, people that judge you. He's saying, no, no, don't get revenge on them. Pray for them. To get revenge will only perpetuate destruction in your life. 
You've heard it said, but I say. Then he finishes with this. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Anyone, anyone achieve that? Yeah? No? It's a bit of a tough one. <laughs> What's he saying? I spent this week, interestingly, I, I, I was preparing for this, and then I, I'm in like a theology discussion group on Facebook. I'm a bit of a, a, bit of a nerd, but... Um, <laughs> This question came up. Someone said, what, what, does God really expect us all to be perfect? This was, this was the question. And, then, and then, then came a whole lot of people quoting lists and, and you know, saying, yes, God demands that we be perfect. And, and, and so where did they jump? They straight, jumped straight to the surface stuff, all the behavior. Yes, God demands you to be perfect. And, and but, I mean, let's be honest. This is... We're in all the lists. <laughs> so what's Jesus really saying? Uh, this word perfect uh, in, in the Greek is teleos, teleos. And it's an adjective, not a verb. It's actually a state of being, not a state of doing. The, the word means this, having reached its end, finished. Uh, someone on the cross said it was finished, eh? Like... Someone said that he fulfilled all the requirements of the law. It's complete, it's perfect, without blemish, it's absolute, it's, it's accomplished. See, this is a state of being, not a state of doing. So here's the point. The gospel does not require us to be a better person. The gospel actually makes us a different person. See, the gospel is not a, an idea or a concept to believe in, but it's actually the power unto salvation. It's the power to complete you, the power to make you whole. We, we live from a position of completeness. We live from a position of wholeness, not towards wholeness. We, we, we are perfected because Christ is perfect. And, and, and when we live in that, from that understanding, from that revelation, we actually, it changes the way we live. It changes the way we act. It changes the way we treat each other. It changes, it changes our behavior, not because of effort, but because the perfect one has come alive in us. This is a state of being, not a state of doing. How freeing is that? So let's, uh, let's look at this. What, what is sin anyway? Because I think, I think we need to understand this to actually understand how, how do we live out of a place of wholeness. So, so the word sin is hamatia. Hamatia, and it means, uh, the basic meaning is, is to miss the mark. To miss the mark. It, it, it also means to be without a share in or to not partake of. And so what, what is the mark? I think that's the question and maybe the, the bit that we get a bit misguided or misunderstanding about, that the mark is not perfect behavior. I, I think sometimes just hearing that, we can sort of think, it, think of it that way. It's not perfect behavior. The mark is union with God. The mark is Christ himself. And anything that disrupts this union misses the mark.
To sin is to miss our share in or to not partake in our life union with Christ. See, it's missing a part of or a share of. In our relational union with God, we are not taking part of or sharing in the abundance or the fullness of God. When we live outside our relational union, which, uh, which is life and love, which is God, our lives begin to look less than life and love. Our, our lives start to look less human. See, Peter said that we are partakers of the divine nature. Sin is to, to not partake in that union with Christ. So, so here's the point. Sin is not a thing. Sin is not a thing. It's a position of disunion with God. Sin is a relational issue, not a thing. And, and our behavior, or what we more commonly know as sin, is an outflow of this broken relationship. See, when we are disconnected from our life source, we try to find life through other means. And unfortunately, one of the most common means that we try to find life is to dehumanize others. We do it by using them to seek gratification. We do it by treating them with contempt, judging them, thinking that we're better than them. See, all of this stuff dehumanizes people. And ultimately, it actually dehumanizes us. See, the wages of sin is death or destruction. Well, one way of thinking about that is that the punishment for sin is actually built into sin itself. We actually live with the consequences of being disconnected from our life source. This is why the gospel is always about reconciliation. It's about bringing us back together, knitting us back together, making us whole again. See, sin's consequence is not just a sometime in the future thing. It's actually, there's a price that we pay now. See, sin will always cost us more than we ever wanted it to cost. So, But what I really want us to understand this morning is that, that sin is not our behavior. That's just the fruit of our disconnection with God. This is a relational issue. If we could have the, um, maybe just Josh on the keys for now, that would be cool. Thanks, mate. I, I want to... Um, I just want to finish this morning with a thought. I, I, uh, I've got this branch here, and this is a, a living branch, or it was. I broke it off this morning from a tree. I wanted to bring a pot plant, but I couldn't find a, pro, uh, a, a real pot plant, <laughs> or one that Ellie would let me break stuff off. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> I want us to think for a moment about the story of the prodigal son. Um, and this is my favorite 
passage in the Bible, I, I'm obsessed with it. I love it. I read it over and over again. And again, every time I read it, I discover something more, something fresh. Um, and um, to the point that I'm writing a book about it. So anyway. Uh, but there's this, this parable. I, I won't read the whole thing, but uh, in summary, the story goes like this. There's, there's a, a father. And really, the, the, the story of the prodigal son is actually the story of the good father. And there's one son who says, I, I want my share of the inheritance. I want my share. Sin is to not partake in our share. Prodigal son says, I, I want my share. I want us to think about, about this as, as God. You know, I mean, he... he Jesus says, I, I, am, I am the vine, you are the branches. You know, like th this is a common sort of illustration that Jesus gives us, that, that we need to be connected to our life source, that our life source is God and, and that Jesus is the vine and that, that our Father is the, the gardener. And, and so we have this illustration, but I'd like to pull it into the prodigal son's story. And, and so we have this, this son who says, I want my share. So let's imagine that, that this branch is God, is, is our abundance that we get to partake in with God. And, and the youngest son, he says, he says, I want my share. And he, he disconnects from his life union with God. And, and we know in the story that, that he goes off and he squanders the wealth. He, he starts to waste the money and he starts to be used and abused by others. What's happening to him? He's disconnected from the life source and is slowly becoming less and less human. The Bible says that he, he hires prostitutes. What's he doing? He's dehumanizing others. He's disconnected from the life source. He's trying to find life somewhere else. He said, I want my share. I want life, but I want it on my terms. And then we've got this other brother in the story who is, who is just as lost and just as confused as the younger brother. And what he does is let's imagine that this is our Father, and this is our, our life source, and we know that being connected to Him is where we find life. And, but He's over here. Someday in the future, I'll get to have that. If I just work hard enough, if I just behave well enough, if I, if I just do all of the things, one day I'll, I'll, I'll get to partake. One day, sometime in the future, but I better do all the right things. And what he has done, has, he has disconnected himself through religion. And we know in the story that the father says, hey, hey all that I have was, was yours. It's always been yours. You've always been allowed to partake. 
And we see the younger son, he comes back and he's restored and we see the reconciliation. And unfortunately, the, the story ends with a cliffhanger. We never know whether the oldest son comes home. The point is this, is that we can... We can disconnect ourselves from the life source through two ways. Either we try and get life on our own, or we think that life has to be earned. Probably one of the saddest things that that I see and one of the things that's most on my heart is for those that are disconnected from the life source because of religion. I mean, that's that's my whole heart behind why I'm writing the book at the moment. But the problem is with our perspective. Be perfect just as your father is perfect. Come on, you've got to follow all the rules. Find the lists. Just make sure it's a list that you're not in. Hey, you know what I mean? Like, see the old, the older brother. He's over here, and he's saying, he's looking at the younger brother. He's comparing himself to the younger brother and saying, uh, "But I didn't, I didn't buy prostitutes. I, I didn't waste your money." He's comparing himself to try and make himself feel better about himself and where where he's at. And I, I see that all the time. See it on Facebook all the time. You know, like, those other Christians, they're not real Christians. Like, seriously, get a life. Like, actually get the life. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's life outside of comparing yourself to others. C.S. Lewis um, gives us some really helpful images around this whole thing in, in his book, The Great Divorce. And he says that hell is depicted as this endless great town with millions and millions of houses where everybody is constantly moving further and further away from each other because they can't stand each other. They're nasty people. They don't like each other and they're consumed with self. It looks like an increasing process of dehumanization. God giving us over to our desires and finding that we become less and less human and things come apart. So here's what I believe. That we demonstrate our life union with God through how we treat others. How we treat others is the tell. Am I connected to the life source? Or am I trying to get it through religion or am I trying to get it on my own terms how we love others is how we love God and Jesus gets right underneath it all (laughs) exposes our intentions our motives let me finish with this last thought maybe the rest of the team can come we're gonna we'll finish with a song this morning but the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus, how do, how do I get life? 
a really good question, eh? I think a question we should all ask. How do I, how do I get life? And Jesus says, have you obeyed the rules? Eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've obeyed all the rules. Done it all since I was young. And then Jesus says to him, you know, this one thing you lack, give up all your money and give it to the poor. And he goes away sad. He's not willing to do that. What's Jesus doing now? He, like, he just like gets underneath it all and gets to the heart of it. Jesus. Hey. <laughs> he asks all the right questions. What's the rich young ruler saying? He's saying, even though I have obeyed all the rules and I have achieved all of the worldly success, there's something still in my life that is missing the mark. There's something still in my life that I'm not partaking in. I'm not sharing in. There's, there's something of life that I have not yet achieved. And Jesus, I see it in you. What must I do to get that? How do I partake in this abundance? What must I do to partake in the divine nature? How do I become what I see in you, Jesus? This is, this is the question that he's asking. And Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. He says, there's one thing you lack. See, the point is this, that true life is found when we give up our lives when we try to stop finding life on our own terms, where we stop thinking that life is something that we can achieve through effort. Jesus says, those who try to gain life will lose it. Listen to that. Those who try to gain life will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake will find it. See, life is found through surrender. That's it. It's beautiful. It's, so, it's simple, yet so hard to do. Yeah, you, you won't find life in your marriage. Your, life, your marriage can be life-giving. But your spouse won't give you the life that you're looking for. And when we do that, when we have that approach in our marriages, we are trying to get life from someone else. Ultimately, we end up dehumanizing them. No, no, our marriages are meant to be life-giving. Stand with me this morning. I'm going to pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you, you did it all. We thank you that what you have done on our behalf, you did because we could not do. We thank you that you fulfilled all the requirements of the law. You showed us what it means and what it looks like 
to, to love God and to truly love others. And we thank you that because of your death and resurrection that, that we are not just better people, but we are new people. That your life is now in us. That it's no longer I that lives, but it's you that lives in me. I thank you that, 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 I, that we don't have to achieve life through effort, through striving, but just through simple surrender. We thank you that it's always been a relational issue. It's not about our behavior, but we thank you that when we are restored in right relationship with you and we get in life from you, the true source, that it changes the way we think, it changes the way we act, it changes the way we live. We start to treat people with respect and honor and with love and dignity. So I ask this morning, even for myself, we just come back to you again this morning, Jesus, and say, we want to be connected to you. And we thank you that it is as simple as that. We thank you that the prodigal son was fully restored. We thank you that that is always your intention. We thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy, and your goodness, and your kindness. And we thank you that even when we're going the other way, you're chasing us down with it. We thank you for every person here this morning. We pray this morning as, as your spirit moves in our hearts that we would make the appropriate responses to you this morning, not out of condemnation or guilt, but out of love. That sense that we want to live lives that represent you well. That sense that we want to live lives connected to you, the life source. We thank you for what you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.